Hello and welcome to the Mindfulness for Learning podcast. Today I speak to the wonderful author of the Wellbeing Toolkit and more recently the Wellbeing Curriculum. Andrew Cowley states that his first book was 26 years in the making. And in this conversation with Andrew, we go right back to discuss Andrew's childhood, his entrance into the teaching world, and explore the moments that influenced and developed his love for well-being in the workplace. He's in um, a gherkin knife called a kukri, and um, he said, I'll show you how sharp it is. And he brought in a melon, threw a melon up into the air, and sliced it in midair, and it fell in two perfect halves. I felt honoured to speak to Andrew about his life, his family and passions, including who his well-being heroes are, the latest addition to his family, his granddaughter Honey. Uh, yeah, she's the best thing for my well-being. And what he thinks about phonics. With no further delay, here is the episode. Enjoy. Andrew Cowley, welcome to the Mindfulness for Learning podcast. Thank you, Sophie, and it's wonderful to be speaking to you at last. We've been connected for quite some time, haven't we? I know, I can't believe you're here. Yay! I'm super excited to have you here. I know one of my questions later is about asking about your well-being heroes and you're definitely one of mine. So it's a very special moment to be talking to you about the books, uh, the author of the books that I've read and loved and have changed my teaching life and my life, of course, because if it changes work, it changes everything. Yeah, Um, it's fantastic to hear that I've had that impact on on, on, on people. Yeah, you really have. And I mean, you know, it's... um, you go into prime. I go into lots of different primary schools, and you know people are using it, and and it's changing their practice, and it's it's so wonderful. So thank you for for writing them. It's my pleasure. You say right at the beginning of the Wellbeing Toolkit, your first book, that the book had been twenty six years in the making, which is how long you'd spent in schools. At that point um, in time, yeah. Right. That's right. Um, I want to know more about you prior to working in schools and go right back to, to you as a, a, as a child in school. Um, what, were you, what were you like as a child and what was education and school like for you? Yeah, that's a good, really good question. Um, I was pretty quiet. Um, you know, I, I got on with things. I mean, I can't, I can't remember being taught to read. Um, um, I've never ever struggled with reading. You know, always had a. I remember having a, um, a quite a high reading age at primary school. Right. Um, you know, and I, and I very much really enjoyed primary school. I had uh, the teachers I remember uh, in what was uh, then called top juniors, just to give away oh, right. a little bit. Uh, and top top infants rather. There was um, a wonderful lady called Miss Wilkinson, uh, who also. Uh, Every Sunday we saw it at our local church because I, uh, I went to the local church where I remember the boys' brigade. Um, you know, she was particularly uh, memorable, um, just really appreciated the sort of things I did. And then in year, what's now, year five and six, so up, uh, third and fourth year juniors, I had a lovely lady called Mrs. Dalrymple, uh, who was at my school forever, I think. Um, and... Uh, chap called Bill McCann in in, uh, Top Juniors, who was a real character. Um, He was uh, formerly been in the the army, served in Burma in the war. Oh, wow. And um, he had lots of stories from that. And he came, he brought in um, uh, a Gurkha knife called called a Kukri. And um, he said, this is really sharp. And um, he said, I'll show you how sharp it is. And he brought in a melon threw a melon up into the air and sliced it in midair and it fell in two perfect halves. Wow. Uh, no, but uh, he said, I'm going to have to do something now. I said, the, uh, the tradition is this is never draw- 
uh, always has to draw blood, so he just, he just just ran it very gently across his finger, and then uh, and it and it hit wow. blood. So he said, "This is like, yeah, this is a tradition." And, you know, the, the girl who gave it to me said, "This is what the tradition is." So I'm fulfilling that tradition, and that was uh, just a, a memory that that stands out. I mean, it's a wonderful teacher that he had. Um, the things like that that he did uh, stood out, and I also remember in a in a gymnastics lesson. Um, and it, it, this is the days before before teachers changed into their PE kits. He <laughs> he bolted over a horse in his suit. Oh wow! <laughs> and did a, and did a, and a, a full somersault in it as well. It was just amazing. Um, what comes across about all those teachers you're describing is that they were able to to get their personalities across and and their individuality as a human. And I think sometimes with with the system these days, we're kind of stripped of that. Do you, would you agree with that? I, I, I definitely would, um, because it's those teachers we remember. We remember them for the things that they do. Um, uh, you know, the three particularly my primary school that I remember and my secondary school. Uh, again, I'm, I do credit them in, my, in the wellbeing toolkit. Um, uh, there were my history teachers, Chris and Pauline Collier, obviously a married couple, who were... Um, Again, hugely dedicated to to the school and to love of history, and it, and it's um, my love of history goes back to being taught by by them. Uh, again, huge, um, you know, huge personalities, and when we remember the teachers that we have, uh, we don't remember them. You know, today's children they're not going to remember a child and say uh, a teacher and say, "Oh, they're great. They got me my." got me to greater than expected level. Yeah. What's that mean? And being, oh, I remember because they took us on a school journey. He taught us how to taught us how to paint. Um, you know, mop my knee up when I cut it open on the, on the playground. Those, those kinds of things, those real personal things are what we remember our teachers for. And that, that to me is, is the... If we think about curriculum... Curriculum is not just what they learn in class. Curriculum is the whole breadth of learning experience that actually forges the young people of the future. Yeah. You you also discuss, I mean, with, we're talking about the the power of being a real real person as a teacher and you also discussed the power of pupil voice and the importance of I think you say allowing children to participate and contribute in a school context and these moments can change a child's life to be heard and recognized Mm. um, build self-esteem so you're obviously passionate about you're obviously passionate about well-being we all know that but can you tell me about some significant points when growing up that you feel have influenced and developed your passion for child well-being yeah, lot, lots of uh, lots of things really. When one thing, yeah, the appreciation of voice is that comes from, like I said before, I was quite quiet, and uh, yeah, I was yeah, always able enough at school. I was, uh, you know, I was in um, the top groups in, in primary school. I was never, you never, never the top one, and never quite noticed, and never quite remembered. And what was interesting, I was one of, um, I've only ever taught one child called Andrew. In, 28 years but there were six of us in my class <laughs> six wow. Andrews in my party in my, God, in my that's six Andrews. and uh <laughs> it's, it you know, shows the trend of the name yeah uh and sometimes you felt a little bit like not noticed quite so much right um perhaps by the teachers who perhaps aren't as memorable yeah uh, now and um 
you do remember that. And one particular thing I do remember in when I was in second year juniors, we had a very uh, teacher was very very traditional, and everyone was in rows, and there was a bit of tests every week, and you would be moved up and down the rows depending on your test results. And the back row was always the top scorers. I remember one week, and it was I think I struggled with subtraction. From, from what I recall, and I didn't do as well on the test, and I was moved down to the next row down, and I just just felt so humiliated by that. And I worked my socks off to get back up the next week, which I also met someone else co coming down. But that I thought that was the impact on me of being made to feel like that, and that's ultimately where where emotional intelligence comes in. How do people feel? as a result of your actions, which not nothing malicious in what was being done, but it was just how do the children feel when, when that happens. Um, how should we manage that? How, like, as a teacher now, because obviously it still is very much about levels and, and grades and passing, and how, do, how should a teacher manage that when that's expected of them, do you think? I think we need to think about how we teach children how we fail. Right. And failure isn't failure. Uh, failure is making an error and an error that we can learn from because after all, we do learn from our errors. That's the way we work through life. If you're, um, for example, if you're trying to put up a shelf and you, um, you get the animal wrong and it's, uh, everything slides off the shelf, it's because you've not used the drill in the correct way. You've not used a, um, a level in the correct way. You, you, you learn from that when you come back to it again. You don't live with that area. So you learn to make that mistake. And I think we need to really uh, embrace, almost like celebrate uh, making mistakes because mistakes are part of learning. Uh, there's a, an acronym FAIL, first attempt in learning, uh, to actually to rather call it failure. Uh, because it's um, this is how we really develop our confidence in our young people. Um, yeah, lots have been said, particularly in, as we've recovered from the pandemic, about uh, about resilience, resilience being uh, rather eroded. Uh, but part of resilience is learning how we cope with perceptions, how you not to give up after one, oh, well, I can't do it, I can't do it, let's not, let's not carry on with it. Uh, that's that's a, a sign to really develop. So, uh, let's take another example that children might typically have learning to swim. For example, I, um, I've been involved in, I was involved in teaching swimming right through my, uh, my primary career. Uh, and I've seen plenty of children who, you know, their first swimming lesson, they, they get in at the, uh, the bottom end of the pool, they're really struggling, they can't get their feet off the, off the floor, they, um, they, they, they just panic and, and splash around, some get a mouthful of water. Well, I've seen plenty of children also in that, that time, in the course of just a few weeks, get that level of confidence. Uh, let, uh, you know, they, they, they've had the mouthful of water, but then they realise, yes, they can float. They can propel themselves. They can move. They can move at some kind of speed. And it's those little levels of confidence that build and build and build to actually give that child resilience, uh, which is about feeling good. And it, and it, it makes... 
life so much more joyful doesn't it because it shielding them from these things I guess like you know with the system that we've got we can't not assess it's some a lot of schools it's what we need to do or what we're required to do so it's finding a way around that so I really like that idea of you know they've got to do these things but teaching them how to respond to, to those feelings of because I think for me as a child that that really rings true I think I was so scared to fail at anything that actually when I entered my 20s I just didn't touch anything I didn't I didn't want to experience anything for fear of failure and it's really taken me a lot of work to start to build on that and develop some some confidence and self-esteem so it's a really really lovely lovely idea to approach it in that way yeah and if we, and particularly if we think about the, the language that's used in, edu- in education right now again as we recover from the pandemic about being behind and, and yeah. what's learning yeah. uh, being behind well first of all how do you know they're behind because you've not measured anything yeah uh you know we've got we've, uh, schools have just had sats for the first time in three years uh and, and sats are sats are not the most reliable measure no because it's it's number of children at a at a point or not and by their very nature learning isn't learning is gradual uh, and they might not at that particular point in May have got that level of understanding, but who knows? In June they might have done, uh, and we're measuring at one point in time. Uh, so, so, so lost learning is a bit of a, well, it's a bit of a political tool, really, I suppose. Um, but what about the gained learning that they had in in that time? Um, you know, many them spend much more time with their families. I know they, they were obviously very challenging times, but learning new skills together as a family uh, was one of the positives that came out of spending time outside, particularly in the first lockdown, was one of the, the, the things that came from it. Um, obviously, as the, as the pandemic went on further, particularly in the winter lockdown, that that did erode a lot of uh, our resilience and challenge a lot of mental health um, amongst our families and our teachers as well. But certainly in the first lockdown, the opportunity for that learning together was there. So you said you were quite a quiet child. Would you describe yourself as an introvert or would you not label uh, it at yeah, all? Yeah, I would. <laughs> yeah. I would, yeah. I did I did a, a lot of thinking. I kept my, uh, my myself to myself in, in many ways. I was you know, never, the, never the popular kid. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I love sport, but I was never very good at it. Um, particularly, I was desperate to get in the uh, uh, desperate to, to play football uh, for in the, at school, but uh, you know my skill level wasn't particularly good. I loved cricket. Um, you know, I still loved cricket and, and football and, and most sports actually. Um, yeah, you know, I was a little more skillful at cricket, but uh, again, never had the opportunity to uh, to play at any sort of representative level. Um, uh, just, uh, but that did show me. Um, the absolute value of, of physical exercise and, and being involved in sport. Uh, so even though I was not a particularly gifted sports person, I, I did lead uh, PE. In, that was my first uh, responsibility for a subject uh, when I was an NQT, actually. Uh, and, and PE lessons were something I was always very successful at. I had a very good uh, observation in PE as a, as a trainee teacher. And... Um, well, we don't do things for Ofsted, but the first Ofsted inspection we had, I, I did a P lesson at the um, 
the inspector said was one of the best ones he'd ever seen. Oh, <laughs> wow. Uh, and actually went on to, um, I trained with the Youth Sports Trust uh, to deliver something at the time was called the Tops, Tops Scheme. Uh, which um, I, I, I trained in a number of trained a number of schools and the use of those, uh, and but the, the way of thinking there was not only it's delivering uh, PE, but it's also um, how you manage how you manage uh, a class outside, and it's taking um, which is one of the things often panics. Yeah, it can be quite handful, can't it? Yeah. Uh, but it's just about you know, thinking about creating your own space and making that your classroom. Even though you've got those vast expanses, I mean, we were very lucky. Uh, uh, worked in authority where we had uh, we had a field, so there was a huge amount of space. But you just uh, create your zones and your operation there, and it actually works very well as a way of developing you as a teacher in, in thinking through your uh, class management systems, uh, as well as organising uh, an effective PE lesson. And and so you found sport, and that was what kind of you, you found something in that for yourself. Do you, as yeah. a as a teacher, do you think I quite often think about uh, in the introverts and extroverts, and how in our society we do celebrate extroverts so much more. You quite often see it on a school report, and it says your child needs to put their hand up more, or be more confident, or show you know show that they're interested you know more openly. I guess. Um, do you think as a teacher that extroverts People think that teachers are better if they're extroverts because they have, it's like that parent-teacher relationship has to be built up. And quite often I hear parents speak about teachers who don't perhaps, they're not extroverts and they don't go out what they seem as confident to talk to parents. They think that that's a bad thing. But quite often we have to treat people individually, don't we, in terms of teaching and celebrate those differences. Yeah, we do, because you can't be... uh something that you're not uh you know certainly speaking to to parents uh, you do have some I, I found that someone who's probably naturally quite quiet you have to find that inner level of of, of confidence to to speak to parents yeah so in some some ways you put on a little bit of an act um to make sure you've got that level of, of confidence and, and to portray that but again not come out in an extrovert over the top way because uh that in, ma- in many ways, that's not genuine. I think. Um, yeah, that's so true. Authenticity as a person, actually, you can genuinely project who you are. Uh, I, I do think children and parents and your colleagues genuinely do pick up on that. Uh, if you create, if you project an image which is fake, for want of a better word, or you know, not not yourself, then you have a reputation to live up to, and. Um, how awkward can that be? Yeah, and so exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in many ways, uh, being a primary school teacher is a bit of a, is a, bit of an act um, in many ways. I mean, another thing, I, I, I always loved reading with the children. I was a, uh, I was a big reader from, from, being, uh, from being very small. As I said earlier, I can't remember learning to read. I just read. Um, and um, my mum was a librarian, so I was signed up at the library at the age of uh, age of two, and taking books out uh, then. And uh, you know, so I was a big, big reader uh, as a child, and that's carried on. Um, uh, there's, there's books or books in every room of our house, apart from the bathroom. Yeah, oh, that's uh, so lovely. So yeah, we've always got books on the go, and uh, yeah. But you don't remember always... being taught to read, which is interesting. What's yeah, your no, view but... on phonics? Phonics. Um, 
Yeah, uh, phonics on Twitter. You'll uh, you'll um, end up being uh, being being being. I think Andrew meta- might hang metaphoric- up. <laughs> metaphorically beaten to death. Um, uh, um, say no comment, Andrew. Yeah, no, there's there's a place a place for it, but it's not ideal. It doesn't take meaning. Um, it teaches how how to read, and I remember I had um, one of my EAL learners in year six could read absolutely anything because he had the phonics of B, his comprehension was just not there because he um, was in second year of learning English, so he could read, read all the words, but he did not, could not understand them at all, and he required a particular level of, of support um, in, in the course of his time. Um, and that's just one particular example. Um, the, the, the way phonics is, is taught is not, always particularly um, creative no and it's not the only way of teaching reading no uh, but it's a requirement that children have um, and I yeah, respect the decision that it's 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 there but there are other ways of getting children into good books well that was that was very diplomatic but very true Andrew I agree mm-hmm. I mean I agree with you uh, yeah it's my daughter hasn't taken to phonics in the same way that my son had did. Mm. Um, and she's much more into the story and the characters and wants to, you know, explore story, explore books in that way. And so we've gone yeah. that way. It's not for everyone, is it, I guess, is the point. It's not. Uh, I had the same conversation with my uh, my two daughters. They obviously, I remember them being, uh, being at school and being taught to read, but they can't really remember how they learn to read. And they, they're just the same as me. They, they'll pick up a, a book. They've got no, uh, absolutely no, no trouble with, uh, with their reading at all. What was the moment that you realised you wanted to become a teacher? Again, good question. Um, when I, um, so I, I was a, really loved history and I was very inspired, uh, so by the the, uh, the colleagues, Chris and Pauline, um, into the, into the love of history, and I went to do a history degree at uh, University of Warwick, and I think it was probably at that point I made my decision to to want to teach. Um, I initially thought I was going to be a, uh, a history teacher at secondary. Um, because you were inspired by them? Yeah, yeah, very, very much so. Uh, but circumstances meant that I was, going to, I was going to do an MA and then a PGCE, but the funding for MA fell through. So I was in a position where I had to go and find uh, some work. And I found a job in um, an insurance firm, but they required me moving because I from um, I was originally from the north of England, from a town called Southport, which is near Liverpool. Um, and that was the time in the mid-80s when uh, unemployment uh, was quite high. It did require a lot of people to move, so I actually moved south um, and worked for the insurance company. I think I might spend a year or two, but I pulled up some funds so I could uh, be secure enough to go and teach. Well, so where um, were you born? Uh, I was born in Southport. Yeah. Oh, OK. Uh, I occasionally betray myself a few flat vowels. My my girls think uh, my mum and dad's accents is is very funny, and they sort of do a they sort of do a they do do mock up an accent, but it sounds more like uh, more like Vera from Coronation Street than <laughs> <laughs> my mum actually sounds. Um, yeah, so that's why actually I, I start, so I moved south, and I ended up working for the insurance company for five years. Um, uh, but at that point, I'd met. Um, I met the lady who subsequently became my wife. Yeah. Uh, and she was in teaching um, as well. Right. Um, 
and I said, you know, it was always something I wanted to do. And she said, well, why don't we? You know, so it's, it's a chance we're going to get a chance to get holidays together. Uh, so at that point, I did uh, train. So I was twenty-seven when I uh, when I became a teacher. So I'd had a few years of life experience behind me, which I think was very valuable. Um, but uh, I've made the decision to to go into primary, and um, that was um, one of the best decisions I made. So you've achieved so many things since that moment and you're able to use all these experiences to share your knowledge and your expertise in your first book the wellbeing toolkit in 2019 and then again in the wellbeing curriculum in 2021 so let's go right back before these publications and what was the moment the wellbeing bug got you how how did it develop into two books and wellbeing truly embedded in your work settings yeah um well as you said from uh, you know book one i said this work it's been 26 years in the making um because I came from a sense of, like I said before, having uh, emotional intelligence is really important, uh, and also um, recognizing that every act that we had impacted upon uh, every everyone else, uh, and that could you could impact on somebody positively, negatively, or neutrally. Uh, and when I was seeing people be impacted negatively. That made me realise, you know, what can, why is that, why is that happening? Was that in school when you became a teacher, or were you? Do you think you were linking it, thinking about when you were younger, um, or both? Combination of two, and also with my my experience in the in the workplace and I worked in insurance, when I you, you realise just how it does impact how people feel, um, and it's you need to consider how you make people feel in your uh, in your actions uh, and what I was seeing actually was um, very typically people being critical of other teachers uh, not liking the way that they were they were teaching or like the way uh, they were controlling other people other, 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 um, the children in their class um, actually that's that struck me as you know is that, is that fair you know should you be talking about something like that uh, you know, where's the professionalism there? Because uh, you know, as teachers, we are there as professionals, but uh, you know, the, the professionalism side is not always covered in um, in initial teacher training. We taught, you know, taught taught the uh, you know the essentials of uh, of teaching various subjects, but we're not talked about the role of being in the workplace, uh, which is absolutely essential because you've got um, you're talking about working with a range of um, range of people you know you talk talk about uh, many things many well-being topics in your book um you particularly discuss the the problems that can arise in settings such as toxic work environments and the lack of awareness of compassion and understanding so what was your biggest challenge that you faced when attempting to embed a well-being culture in your setting i think one of the biggest things is people don't like change um and that's not say that they they don't want it but it's often un- unfamiliar, uh, and and there's nothing. People say well, well-being is a bad thing, but you also get some people have got a very strange image about what well-being is. They think about self, um, and one thing I've really emphasised is you've got to think about team. Team comes before self, uh, and that's how you put the culture together, and it takes time. When I had, um, 
as you can, one of the challenging conversations I have with somebody, they said there's no care for well-being in this school. And I said, how on earth can you say that? Uh, and I said, this, this happens and this happens, and we do this with the diary, and we make plenty of notices and make sure everyone's looked, looked up, sure nobody's given, nobody loses their, their professional time. This wasn't from a teacher, it was from a member of support staff. Um, and so that was one of the biggest, the one of the biggest challenges is, is, is attitude. That's why I say early in the book, in building a, a culture, you need to think about your relationships. Culture and relationships drive everything in a school. Um, indeed, they do in any workplace, but particularly in, in a school. And if it, it was the strength of the relationships that are, were really important. So that was the one thing that I found that was a challenge. People wouldn't, who couldn't buy into the relationships at that point in time. What happens at that point when people are just not buying into it? There's a couple things. So you need to have some quite firm conversations, you know, not toxic conversations, not one of those that you, because what I had to do, actually had to do when I, uh, I had somebody who was actually quite rude to me in public. Uh, so I just said, right, you come to my office, we'll speak in private now. I never got cross with somebody in, in, in public, even if they did with me. And I said, so my, my point was, to them, said, you, know, you please do not speak to me in that manner in front of other members of staff because that's undermining my authority. If you do wish to challenge something, there are polite ways to do it, such as we are doing now. And then we went uh, went through that. And I said, I, I'm not going to take it any further. You've had that. I've, I've spoken to you and I said, yeah, is it telling off? I said, yes, it is telling off. Is it official? No. Uh, but I said, this is why, this is what we're doing in this school. This is what I'd like us to do. Uh, to, to move it forward and um, sometimes you need to have those conversations this is why uh, I say well-being is not soft well-being is well actually hard yeah because people have visions of, of people just walking around doing what they want don't they it's like yeah. this and, and people get scared by those lack of boundaries and things mm. but I think it, it like you say it isn't it isn't fluff, it isn't airy, it's creating a safe space for people, which ultimately does have boundaries. It is, because, uh, <laughs> and actually one of the most interesting conversations I had when I was sitting at work or something in teaching was um, at a, a meeting of, of uh, senior leaders and uh, somebody said, oh, these teachers, you know, they're, they're whinging about their well-being and going on, but... Um, moaning about this, moaning about that, moaning about the workload. What do you think? And this was um, a week before Wellbeing Toolkit was published. So I uh, just uh, moved, removed my papers and my death book was on the desk and I said, that's what I think. Mm -hmm. and the, the look on their face was a picture. <laughs> uh, and someone else said, oh, you've written a book. I, said, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, and just just to make the point, so pe um, again, to me that showed a lack of emotional intelligence from the person who said that. Uh, I've seen similar attitudes expressed on social media. I mean, social media is is great for connections. Like, like you yeah, know, we made our the connection Sophie from uh, social media for quite some time. But uh, it, the thing with social media, it gives a uh, it gives an opinion to to anyone, uh, and they can put it out there and however unpopular it might be, there'll be somebody who, who will like it or respond to it in some way. Uh, and I have seen some unfortunate things written about uh, teachers' wellbeing by people in education, which uh, I don't need to repeat here, but um, if the, let's just say if those people's colleagues knew that that, that was the, a 
about that opinion, they would not uh, probably want to work for them very long. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it is it is it, it, those kind of opinions that, you know, the, the teaching assistant, I think you said the person was that came to your office, those, if you allow that to, to fester and grow, it just takes over, doesn't it? And then it becomes impossible. It's such a huge job. Yeah, th- th- there is. And you do, um, everyone in the school is valuable. Uh, I, I, I don't like uh, hierarchical structures uh, being displayed as hierarchy. Obviously, you've got to, you, there is a hierarchy in the school, head teacher, deputy, uh, assistant heads, middle leaders, etc. But um, as a team, if on, on your, your website and your uh, notice board in your, um, in, in your reception area, rather than having it in a, in a hierarchy, almost family tree, Thing. Why not put it in alphabetical order or uh, randomly or put it in a big circle because it just shows the value of everyone. Every single person is valued in that um, in that group uh, regardless of what their role is because without their role, the, the school would fall apart. In the final part of the Wellbeing Toolkit, you explore life, I really like this bit actually, the life-changing scenarios, and you don't think about it, but the implications for staff well-being um, are not linear, and the daily occurrences and experiences that have an effect on our mood, the approach to work, our emotional availability. And of course, recently for you, you've had one of those life experiences, those occurrences, and you've recently become a grandparent. I have, yes. So tell me about the moment that Honey was born. Yeah, it was a really emotional, emotional day. Um, because uh, obviously when I, you know, I knew for several months that uh, she was on her way and um, my daughter had a, had a, a scan and we knew we were expecting a little girl so we did and we knew we knew what the name was going to be uh, but so on the, on the day uh, she arrived um, well my, my, my daughter was in labour I had a, had a knock on the door or what's that and um, I had the, the, the proofs of the wellbeing curriculum arrived on that very day. So I was a bit... Oh, oh wow, what a day. And then, and then half an hour later, Dad, you're a granddad. Oh. And uh, I did burst into tears. Because oh. uh, it is, yeah, it is emotional. Um, but that was, it was a wonderful day. And uh, she came home the next day. So I didn't actually see her until... The next day, because uh, um, we couldn't actually go into the hospital, obviously, in the midst of um, oh, of course, COVID, re- COVID restrictions. Yeah. So she came home the next day, and uh, that's been uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's interesting. We talk about the daily occurrences and experiences having an effect on our approach to work, because you go through um, birth and marriage and death and all the things that our staff are going to experience and even something as positive as a as a new baby coming into a family can shift everything can't it It shifts perspective you know the energy that you would feel for the next couple of days can mean that you can't quite focus on what you're doing and having that understanding that we're all human and having those experiences is so important and actually before I read your book I didn't think about those It, it wasn't yeah, I just hadn't thought about those experiences. It seems such an obvious thing now that you've said it, but it's so important that we're understanding, isn't it, and accommodating they are, those. They are, because every person is, is different. And as, as you were saying earlier about the teachers that made that, that stood out for me, you know, they, they very much were people in their own right. Like, uh, 
uh, yeah, reference Chris and Chris and Pauline Collier. Um, there's a, they, um, Chris taught me a, 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 a for O level again. That's dating me. Um, <laughs> um, and both for A level. Uh, and the reason she didn't teach me for O level because uh, she was uh, on maternity leave. Um, so um, I, I saw her, her little boys growing up. But, um, I mean, they're now uh, they're now in their forties. Oh wow! Um, so I've not seen them. I've not seen them for a for a while. But so uh, you know, seeing see them growing up, and then they were very much they were authority figures. They were inspirational figures, but they're also people. Yeah. Um, you know, people living living their life and letting not letting their life be stopped by the um, by their professional obligations. I think that's important to recognise that as teachers we have lives. I mean, obviously it's not we're not well-being isn't just for teachers, but uh, obviously I'm working from my my own experience, and it's important that we recognise that and we celebrate the fact that we have lives because that makes us who we are. It makes us the teacher that we are um, and to be more fully rounded. Yeah, it's a bit of a problem actually that you mentioning that in both the the adults in education and also the children, this this need for everyone to conform and be these robots and just walking around and, you know, the mould that we've created for both of those positions. It's so important that we, we break out of that. Yeah, because that's, you know, in, in that's individuality that's uh, it's how you form your opinions and, and it's important to respect we have different opinions and all have the same one uh, it's important to be able to uh, debate and discuss uh, to say what you think is right and wrong to be uh, respectful of, of other people and other people's opinions and uh, to be respectful of diversity uh, that, that that all fits into that very broad picture of what well-being is. Some important lessons for, for children to learn there. Mm. What impact, if any, has having a granddaughter had on your approach to your own well-being? Has it changed at all? Uh, yeah, she's the best thing for my well-being. <laughs> I'd say that, um, you know, her smile is uh, massively engaging. She's eight months old now, so oh. she's obviously got a huge, uh, you know, recognition of, of me when I... When I uh, well, I've seen her, I've not seen her for a few days. Uh, you know, she's like to reach out always for, for a hug. Um, and that's that's obviously very emotional. Um, yeah. Uh, my, my daughter said, oh, you, you've stopped crying now, Dad. I said, yeah. Oh. <laughs> obviously, yeah, yeah, it's hugely important, yeah, because, um, you know, it's an you know, in, in, instant love uh, for, you know, this little tiny life that, uh, um, yeah, my, my daughter and her partner is uh, what we're primarily responsible for. But, uh, you yeah, know, we are as, as loving grandparents as well. Yeah, and that connection. I mean, I, I, Hannah Ball wrote for the Oxford University Press that a key to improving physical and mental well-being is the strengthening of relationships. So tell me about your relationship with your granddaughter and what you hope to be to her as she grows up and approaches her milestones and struggles, achievements. Obviously, first granddaughter um, is it, particularly special. I was I was the first grandchild uh, for my um, grandparents on my mum's side, 
uh, and I I was spoiled by my brother. Yeah, you get all the time, <laughs> don't you? Yeah, it's um, lovely. Yeah, and um, and, I, and I was close to my grand, so I want to be have that same closeness, uh, but also be you know be her you know moral moral guide, moral guardian uh, will be very important to me, and I'm looking forward to you know when she when she is reading. Uh, you know, to sit down and uh, and, and read with her and, and, and share with her and talk to her and, and get her involved in the things that I like doing as well. Um, I'm a big, uh, yeah, I'm a very keen gardener, so uh, I've already told her that she's going to have a little patch of garden, the garden. I, I'm a very keen cook as well, so I want to teach her to do that um, and, and just have that that kind of relationship to do things together. Is something I'm very much looking forward to. Um, Has it brought you all yeah. closer, your fa- your family? Do you think? Yeah. So we always, yeah, we, we always have been. My, yeah. Uh, my wife and I have been married twenty seven years now. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, I know say they always see us together when we're when we're, when we're not together. You know, there are occasions when you know I'm, we might go out to the shops on our own, or I might um, I might be. Uh, going to work in somewhere else, and oh, oh, where, where, where's your wife? Where's your husband? And they, they always say to us, "We always see you together." So, um, oh, that's so lovely. That's uh, that that's ever so important to to us. Yeah, and uh, what a great um, example uh, for Honey as well, seeing that closeness. Yeah, it is, and obviously, um, you know, close to both of our daughters as well, uh, and that's that's of huge importance to us that we we have that closeness that we can uh, we can laugh together we can laugh with each other at each other which we frequently do <laughs> uh and, and 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 share things together um one of the uh I, we talked about you know um gained learning in the um in the pandemic one one thing we we definitely did which um i suppose from both uh, my wife and i being in school is we didn't very often, as often as we should have done, sit down and all eat together, and that's something that we, uh, the pandemic enabled us to do. Um, to sit down together and eat, which um, you know frequently there'd be two or three meals being cooked uh, at different times. But now that's 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 one thing that certainly brought brought us together. So that's huge, that's massively important. So. And we all know of the education system debate. So we've got Ken Robinson's famous TED talk, I think one of the most watched ones on on TED, uh, Do Schools Kill Creativity? And then we've got Adrian Bethune's animation, Can Schools Make You Happier? And although many are striving for and hoping for this change, it feels like very slow progress at times. And when you have family members that are in the system right now, as it stands, the rate of change can feel even slower and frustrating. So as it stands, is the education system good enough for Honey? Um, good question. Uh, <laughs> um, I would say possibly not at the moment. Um, when it comes to her going to school, uh, I would like the school she goes to to uh, really embrace the idea of the whole child and to think holistically about the academic and pastoral side, the safeguarding and the behaviour, mm. me- mental health and the well-being. Think of it holistically, not put them in separate boxes, but think of it as a whole. 
and yeah. not just for my granddaughter, but for every child in the school. Yeah. And to really embrace that that vision, not sort of, oh, it's Tuesday, it must be mental health, it's Friday, it must be behaviour. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, those things need to be in the conversation all the time. It's, it's shared conversations, common language need to be in place with, with everyone. So it's, the, 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 and that all goes to building the culture, also rather growing the culture. Cultures are, cultures are grown rather than built. Um, it's, they're nurtured. It's not like you're putting your school building together. It's, you start with the foundation, you put the walls up and you put the roof on the top. That's the only way you can do it. But the culture, it takes time. It takes love. It takes a, a passion to do something right. It takes the ability to recognize failure. We talked about failure, failure before. And uh, an example I often give when I'm speaking about well-being is think about uh, growing beans on a, on, on a lot more terrain in your garden. You, uh, you have to plant. You have to plant them deeply enough. You have to plant them in the right soil. You don't just scatter them onto the uh, onto the ground. You provide them with sufficient warmth and water. You provide the support as they grow. You make sure that support is strong and joined, and uh, enables that to flourish. And you recognise when things go wrong, and you protect those beans as as they grow until they reach that full fruition. Uh, and that is that is what growing a culture looks like, and whether that culture is the well-being of your staff, or the well-being of your pupils, uh, or the holistic overview of the, of the school. That's that. It takes time, it takes patience, but it rewards because the reward in your garden or your beans at the end of the summer, the reward in your system are happy teachers and happy children, because. If I was to sum up my writing in one sentence, it would be happy teachers make happy learners. And of course, you've spent a lot of time doing that in schools. But am I right in saying you're no longer in a school? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've, um, I actually took, uh, took, took an earlier retirement. Um, uh, yeah, Covid was exhausting. So that was uh, one of those yes. decisions. <laughs> So what does work look like for you now? Obviously, you've written two books. Yeah, two books. Yeah, I uh, I, I, I finished off the uh, the the second one, the Wellbeing Curriculum, um, and then that was published uh, last year. Uh, and uh, but what I do now, I um, do write and speak about well-being in um, a number of different uh, environments. Um, mainly been online because obviously with the uh, Still, some emergence from COVID. I've done a few live uh, live um, events as well uh, in different parts of the country. Uh, but um, I've been supporting uh, the Carnegie Centre of Excellence at Leeds um, Beckett University with the designated mental health Leeds training uh, in recent months, uh, and that's given me the opportunity there to speak to. I think it's about 800 different schools since uh, since November of 2021, uh, either individual or in groups, supporting their um, their progress through the, the units on that course, uh, and uh, listening to and sharing their experiences about how they are developing good, sound, positive mental health in our schools. Um, uh, and also promoting well-being uh, as well. 
yeah, one one or two of the people on there have um, uh, have recognised me. I know you from somewhere. Yes. Do they ask for your autograph? Uh, no, nobody's done that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to uh, bring but... my books the first time I meet you, so you can sign them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and who are you know? There's a wealth of well-being experts out there. When when you brought the first book out. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't as it was everywhere now, isn't it? And there are so many experts, so it's quite hard to filter through and find the ones you need. So, who are your well-being heroes, and why? Well, currently in um, in the business of well-being, um, I've got to uh, uh, highlight my dear friend Kelly Hannigan, ah, yes. uh, who uh, I met when I wrote the Wellbeing Toolkit. She works in the same authority as me, and we've uh, become very good friends since. Uh, absolutely dedicated to uh, well-being of everyone in uh, in her in her setting. And she wrote the foreword, didn't she, in the curriculum? She did. Yeah, I wanted to write the foreword yeah. for the well-being curriculum, mm. um, which she was uh, very honoured to do. So uh, certainly, Kelly is someone you can uh, always rely on to really promote uh, positive mental health and well-being. Um, my co-founders at uh, at Healthy Toolkits. Um, Maria O'Neill, Helen Lemony and um, Matt Young, Um, we we forged that idea as as an identity together. We looked at uh, taking well-being beyond beyond the fluff, as it were. Um, So we set up that account together. Did uh, you meet online or in person? We met met online originally. Oh, Um, wow. um, We've not all four of us been in the same room together, but I have met her. We have all met each other. That's amazing that you created that without all yeah. being in a room together. Just yeah, it's just yeah, the positives of social yeah. media and the internet. Yeah, and I, I did I did most of the blogging for that group. Um, uh, Maria has gone on to to write for Bloomsbury in her own accord as well um, um, about pastoral care. Um, so that was that was one of those things about social media is, is meeting. Uh, uh, Kelly, Maria, um, hello, Matt, uh, Adrian Bethune as well, um, uh, uh, fellow uh, uh, well-being author, uh, Patrick Otley O'Connor. Um, if anyone's, if you've had, had the pleasure of meeting meeting uh, Patrick, um, talks about talks about his tortoise a lot, talks about his cooking. Um, family is massively important to Patrick. Uh, he's got five boys. For those people who don't know. Uh, and he always talks about putting your own oxygen mask on first. That's his. Uh, that's his uh, important phrase and it's an important thing to to remember. I've met Patrick a couple of times. I'm meeting him in the summer again. Uh, and is he on Twitter? Patrick's on uh, massively on Twitter. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'll put. Um, I don't know if I follow Patrick actually. The other three, the other people I do follow, but Patrick, I'm not sure I do. So I'm gonna make sure, and I will put all of their their Twitter handles on the summary as well. Yeah, they're, 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 they're certainly in the current um, current climate. Um, other important people for well-being, um, I suppose the one I did mention, my, my grandmother before, my grandmother actually set a lot of my um, a lot of my moral agenda for me in many ways. Oh, that's so um, wonderful. Yeah, you know, she taught me the, the, the power of good manners, uh, the power of representation. So my, after my... Um, my grandfather died when I was two, so he was the only—I was the only grandchild he ever saw. 
Um, he was a local councillor, and she took on his council seat after he died. Oh, wow. Uh, and so she really taught me the value of representation and listening to people. And um, she lived in a, in a little village outside of, uh, outside of Southport, um, which uh, had an area of green in it. And one of the last things she did uh, before she died was threatened to... Um, lie down in front of a bulldozer because they were going to develop it and it's much oh, wow. mum and her two sisters <laughs> yeah she was um yeah very much uh, a belief believer in what was right or wrong and actually in many ways was an early uh, <laughs> early environmental activist in, in in some ways so um they were successful at that time in stopping that development of the uh, the green space in the village where she lived um so you know she's hugely important uh, as well but if you look at um, the world of celebrity there's two people who I've actually seen speak um, in recent months uh, who actually really embrace many of the principles of, uh, of well-being because they think about relationships and time and uh, care about what's around them and that's um, Sandy Toxvig who's uh, absolutely wonderful takes time listens um, I, th- I saw her speak at the Orchard Theatre in Dartford and she spoke for two hours and it was the quickest two hours ever because she's just so engaging and the, uh, the other person uh, is, is Grayson Perry who is just, um, I don't know if you've ever watched uh, his art club well, yeah, That saved me I think in the pandemic The way he embraces <laughs> other people's love of art yeah. and celebrates and he's got, his, his laugh is, is just so engaging Oh, yeah, it's infectious, I, I yeah. I saw him speak uh, recently, and he's um, hugely intelligent, as is Sandy, um, and engaging, and uh, uh, his, his awareness of, of so much beyond the world of art is incre- incredible. So they're two, two people whose examples, if you, were, if you have the perfect dinner party, I'd, uh, I'd have Sandy and Grace. Yeah. Oh, I'd definitely yeah. come to that. Can I Can I come? Is that all right? Yes. <laughs> You're cooking, though, Andrew. Yes, I do. I, 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 cook, I love cooking. So. It's something my, uh, my younger daughter has taken on as well. She's on a, uh, on a vegetarian journey. She's a vegetarian for 18 months. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, me and, too. Um, uh, so we've, uh, we've had a lot of vegan and vegetarian food in, in, in that time. We occasionally, when, when she's not around, we do occasionally um, have the meatball or sausage, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, is it incredible? It, it, and that's an, that's been an interesting uh, interesting journey as well. Um, yeah, finding your way around different uh, different different ingredients as well. I've I've cooked since I was little again. That's something my my grand taught me to uh, to do and have that degree of independence. But um, it's interesting finding some new ingredients. So tofu tofu we love in our house now. Yeah. And. Uh, I love it too. We eat a lot of yeah. it in this house. Keeps us going. Oh, Andrew, it's actually been really good for my well-being talking to you this morning. I've got a big smile on my face and I feel set for my day. So thank you so much because it's also the beginning of half term as well. So it's a lovely way to, to start my week it is, off. It is indeed. I think um, it's, it's very important for teachers to embrace the holidays uh, and, and to take every moment of them and not be uh, overwhelmed by reports, emails, uh, requires to get things done. You get, get that balance right 
uh, and also what is, um, well, every, every term in the last two years has been described as the longest term, or every half term is the longest half term. Um, I've certainly getting the image, the vision from uh, schools I've spoken to of high levels of stress. Um, COVID has not quite gone away. Um, in inspections during SATS week, um, you know, they, they are high levels of, of, of stress for some people. Yeah, big letting go now after after that half term. Indeed, and uh, we have a we have a time of uh, time of celebration uh, ahead. Um, you know, we have uh, we have street parties for uh, for the jubilee. Uh, you know, are you doing anything we, special? Uh, we are as a street. We are having a street party. Uh, I'm involved on the uh, organising committee. Uh, my, my my main skill is writing the minutes. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not really. I, I, <laughs> We don't have a sewing machine, and I couldn't sew bunting. Uh, but uh, we're having a sweet party, and we'll be uh, we will be providing some salads for for it. So that's my my contribution will be some uh, some nice healthy salads for the uh, for the street party. So uh, hopefully the weather's going to hold out. Yeah. For us. Oh, how wonderful! I well, have a fantastic time, and thank you so much for coming to talk to me. That's a pleasure. Thank you, Sophie. A big thank you to Andrew Cowley for giving up his Saturday morning to chat to me. It's really clear that connection plays a huge part of Andrew's life. He doesn't underestimate the power of family and community. It was so wonderful to listen to him share his past experiences, including those in the early years of his life, and finding out about the teachers that had an influence on his direction. If you want to find out more about Andrew and what he's getting up to, you can find him on Twitter on at Andrew underscore Cowley 23. And all this information can be found in the episode summary. To find out more about Mindfulness for Learning, you can go to mindfulnessforlearning.com where you can subscribe and follow us on Twitter and Instagram on at m learning A big thank you to our editor, Ben Corbett, for editing this episode and thank you to you, our listeners. See you next time.